Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to A Minute with Coach Riggs. Former T.R. Miller head football coach Jamie Riggs shares his views on all aspects of football after a 40-year Hall of Fame high school career. Coach Riggs and his guests will discuss the latest on the local high school and college teams, the current issues that are dominating high school, college, and NFL football, as well as reliving some of the classic moments and history of the game with the people that made it happen. This is A Minute with Coach Riggs. I want to welcome you to A Minute with Coach Riggs. This is episode four of season two. Today, uh, we're going to I'm going to talk just briefly about the T.R. Miller Top 25, and then we're going to move on to some other football issues as we are deep into September now, and uh, teams are uh, in the process, whether it's college football, high school football now, of trying to determine their seasons. We've had some interesting things that have occurred already, and just want to talk about some of those today. But first, let's deal with the T.R. Miller Top 25. We have made it to where we originally wanted to be. Uh, we have been through 15 of the top 25, and so uh, we're down to the left with the last 10 teams, which was our original idea. Um, the committee decided there were too many good teams, and they were absolutely right, and so this has turned out uh, really well. We've been able to talk about a lot of great teams, uh, a lot of great games, and things that went on in those times, some of the great players and, and coaches that were involved. And so we've been able to do that with some of the guys who were around at that time playing on the teams or, or certainly were around or coached on the team or whatever. And so it was, it's just been really fun to do that. We look forward to the top 10. And if you're a Miller football fan, you might want to sit down and see uh, if if you can come up with who the top 10 teams that are left are going to be and what order they're going to be in. I had someone tell me the other day that, um, you know, they knew pretty much who the top three teams were. They just didn't know what order they were going to be in. So we'll see how that transpires as time goes on. So uh, one of the things that happened in that is when the committee started, they decided that they really had to draw a line somewhere. And so the first one of the first lines they drew was that any team that had two regular season losses uh, they just weren't going to deal with in top 25 unless that team had won the state championship. And so that eliminated a lot of really good teams, especially some teams from, say, back in the 70s and uh, 80s and so forth or that had maybe you know lost a couple of games. Maybe they didn't make the playoffs. Uh, maybe there weren't any playoffs at that time. Uh, we're going to go back and look at some of those teams uh, with the a best of the rest episode, knowing us, that'll probably turn into two episodes, but a best of the rest episode where we're going to look at teams all the way from the 1930s and on up, good, good football teams for T.R. Miller that didn't make the top 25 list. So I want to thank everybody who's been a part of that, uh, particularly David Jennings has been a part of uh, several of those broadcasts. And uh, so we'll look forward to uh, that as it continues, and the next one we'll do will be the number 10 T.R. Miller football team of all time. So let's um, let's let's move on to uh, college football for just a minute. Sooner or later, in football, everybody gets humbled. I know to, to a lot of you it seems like some teams uh, and some coaches win all the time, but they really don't. Football has a lot of highs and a lot of lows, and you got to be able to handle the lows and 
get some answers to your problems and come back and, and, and make that comeback. And it's hard to do sometimes in football, but everybody gets humbled. Losses, uh, particularly losses that where you thought you ought to win, um, bad decisions, bad calls by coaches and referees, turnovers, uh, great players on other teams that dominate games, injuries. There's a number of things in football uh, that can get you humbled in a hurry. I just want to talk about humility in football just a little bit. The, the game of football will humble you very quickly, faster than any other sport. Football taxes you mentally as well as physically. So the humility can come in more than one way. I got uh, certainly got humbled very early in my coaching career. I was an assistant at Miller back in the mid-1980s, and we won a number of games, uh, including the 1984 state championship. Of course, Mike Sasser was the head coach. 1986, I took the uh, head coaching job at Op. And when I got to Op, they had won five games in three years. And uh, I had worked as an assistant over there in 1981 and 82, and we won eight games both years. We were we were a good football team when I was over there. After I left, uh, the talent level dropped a little bit, and um, they, they they struggled. So they hired me to go back over there and try to fix that. The first year, my first year in 1986, we won six games, made the playoffs. And that may not sound like much, but when you hadn't made the playoffs and you'd won five games in three years, you know, that was a that was a, a pretty good first year. We made the playoffs, almost knocked off a great Ufala team on the road in the first round. And one of my first lessons I learned about humility was that just because you reach a certain level for a while doesn't mean you've arrived there and that you're going to stay there. And I found out that the hardest thing to do is once you move up a little bit is to stay there. It's just, you know, once you get up on the peak just a little bit where people are looking up at you, they're looking to knock you off the, the top of that mountain over there. It's not so much as a coach that you, you think you, you're better than everybody else, but a lot of times when you have a little success, you start thinking that you have all the answers. And nobody has all the answers. But in football, you have to believe in, in what you're doing. And you have to have confidence in yourself as a coach. And you have to have confidence as a team. And the more you win, like I said, the more you, you think that you have all the answers to help your team. But nobody does. Everybody stumbles. Everybody has, has games or seasons or whatever that are just not up to what you want them to be. My next season, 1987, we won one game. We lost some good players off the 86 team, and we just didn't have enough speed. And we lost some games pretty badly to some good teams early, and we completely lost our confidence. We were having a really hard time scoring points. We start losing. And the hard part about that, in those days we didn't have social media, but the hard part about that was that, you know, around town it's like we're really bad, we have a bad team, we're doing a bad job of coaching, and, you know, all that stuff is, is, is out there. At the, towards the end of that season, 
we happened to have on our schedule, I, I thought at the time we were probably the second worst team in the state of Alabama. The worst team was Florala, and we had them on the schedule. So they were bad as well. We had three games left. Uh, we had uh, Florala, and we had Delville, and we had Andalusia, our rival. And so I went in there on the Monday morning of the Florala game preaching We've had a bad season. It hadn't been what we wanted it to be. But we have a chance to win the last three games, and we are going to do it. And I tell you, I've, I've tried to fire everybody up. We had a great week of practice. We went and played Florala, and we beat them. We beat them. Our first win of the year, you know, so we were like 0-7 at the time. <laughs> so our first win of the year, we win the game. The next game we had was Delville. And so I went all week preaching that we were going to beat Delville. Now, Delville had kind of an average team. They're a really fast guy. But they, they, they had kind of an average team, and I thought we were surely capable of beating them. I had brought up a couple of younger kids that could run a little better, and we felt a little better about where we were going. All week I preached it. We had a great game plan. I mean, I'm telling you, I worked on the game plan over and over, and all our, all our plays and our, our defense and that. You know, I, I just spent an enormous amount of time getting ready for this game. And so we played it on the road. We went over there to to, uh, to Delville to play. I was pretty excited. It was one of the first times I'd really been excited all year, you know, because of all the losses. And I was pretty excited that I really believed, I had convinced myself we were going to pull this off and that we were going to win uh, the last three games. So we, we go out there to warm up. And, uh, you know, I'm talking to the officials. That feeling struck me where, you know, I need to get to a bathroom pretty soon. I was pretty nervous. And so I finished my conversation with officials, and I hurried as quickly as I could to, to get up to the locker room to uh, to go to the restroom. And uh, I was on the far end of the field, and if you've ever been in the field at Delville, it's down in a hole, so you had to climb steps to get up to the locker room. And I finally get up there, and I make it to the bathroom, and woo, okay, that was much better. So I come out, I gave the last pep talk to the team, and it was a good one. I fired them up. We got ready to go. We're going to win these last three games. We're going to beat these folks tonight. We're going to do this and so forth. Just as I'm finishing that up, that urge struck me again. I need to get in the bathroom. So I finished it, sent everybody, gone. I looked at my watch. It's like eight minutes, seven or eight minutes till kickoff. So I gave my play sheet to one of the assistant coaches and said, look, i got to go to the bathroom. I'll be there as quick as I can get there. For some reason, I'm late. Here's the play sheet. Start calling plays. So I go and uh, I, I go in the bathroom. And I sit down. Everybody leaves. And there's nobody left but me. I mean, I'm the only one in the locker room. All right? And I look at my watch, and it's about three minutes till, eight, till I said, 8 o'clock. It's three minutes till 7 o'clock. We're fixing to kick off. I'm one and seven. I'm on the toilet three minutes before we're fixing to kick off. I finish my business and I get ready and I'm looking for toilet paper and there is none. And I said, I can't believe this. And I look over there and the only roll of toilet paper left sitting in the locker room is sitting in the middle of a big puddle of water now that's humility <laughs> i got it finished i left i go down there and as i go down the steps towards the sideline they're kicking off okay so 
uh, we kicked off to them. They had the ball. And I'm watching the game start as I'm walking down. First play, you know, they run some kind of sweep or something, and we went over there and just nailed the guy. Bam, bam, bam. They lose a couple yards. Um, second down, they make another running play. Man, we knock it in the head. Boom, we knock it out. Well, by that time, I just made it to the sideline. On third down, they try to throw a pass. We covered. It's incomplete. They got a punt to us, and, and we're excited. And our fans are cheering, which there weren't that many fans, but they were cheering. And so we're getting ready to do this thing. We're going we're gonna to win this and win our last three games. Delva punts to us. We've got our best athlete camped under the punt. The ball comes down, goes right between his legs, hits him on the foot, rolls forward. Delva recurves it, goes down and scores, and they beat us 42-21. to 21. So much for winning the last three games. And then the other thing I'll tell you about that season is that probably the greatest dose of humility I ever got, the week before we won the Florella game, we had to come to T.R. Miller to play. And this was Joel Williams' first team. I had to stand on the sideline over, and I think Miller beat us like 38-7, to and we were homecoming. And they beat us 38-7. to and, you know, it was it was really hard to come back to Bruton, get beat that bad. Just three or four years, well, I guess three years after we had won a state championship over there. Sooner or later, everybody gets humbled in football. I used to think sometimes that I knew a lot about offense. You know, I, I studied it a lot, and I, I called plays for a number of years. It's amazing how easy it can be sometimes to score. And I remember back in the mid-'90s, uh, we had uh, Benny Campbell playing running back. And uh, one day we were sitting in the locker room after uh, Benny's senior year there. It was after a game one Saturday morning. We were looking at the film. And, you know, Benny, uh, we, we run a play. And, and we essentially didn't block anybody. I mean, we blocked nobody on the play. Benny took the ball, dodged a tackle in the backfield, bounced outside, outran a guy on the sideline, turned up for a 20-yard game. And I stopped the film, and I said, hey, guys. I said, last night that was a 20-yard game. But Benny's a senior. We run that same play next year. It might be a five-yard loss because who you hand the ball to makes a big difference. At the end of the 97 season, both our starting backs were out injured, and we weren't really a great passing team. All of a sudden, we were struggling to score. We went up to Evergreen and lost to Hillcrest. And we barely beat Clark County the next week, 7-6. to six. You know, anybody can coach offense when your players are better than the defense. But try calling plays when the defense is lined up over there kicking your tail. That'll give you a dose of humility. You'll wonder if you know anything at all about offense. You know, I used to I coach defense for a long time. I used to think I could coach defense. Then Op hung like 50 points on us back in 2013. And, of course, my wife Becky's from my, I don't think she spoke, spoke to me the entire weekend. They were running power read. And if you don't know what power read is, that's basically where the in the shotgun, the running back, so he's lined up on the left. And when they snap the ball, he runs as flat and fast as he can to the right, just like a sweep. And the quarterback will take the ball and kind of put it in his belly and kind of ride him. And he will actually read the end man on the line of scrimmage if that guy 
attacks the running back. He pulls the ball and runs up inside. And the linemen all block down, and you pull a guard around, and, and you block the play for the quarterback. If the last man on the line of scrimmage stays up there on the line of scrimmage and just squeezes down, you hand the ball off, and you outrun him. Op was doing a really good job of running that play because they had a really, really fast quarterback that we didn't seem to be able to tackle. We lose the game. They hung 50 points on us. That really hurt. And you, it, it's a dose of humility to say, you know, we thought we were a pretty good defense, and all of a sudden these people hit us for 50 points. And it really doesn't matter how successful you've been in the past. It's really about what you have done lately. If losing a game isn't enough to humble a team or a coach in this day and time, you can go on social media the next day and read all the comments from people, fans, and, and anyone. The hard thing about the social media stuff is that as humans, if we see something written in print, we seem to think that it's true and that someone who comments on a game is actually commenting with uh, some integrity and, and know what they're talking about. When all that stuff first started and I was coaching, someone tried to tell me one, one Saturday morning what one of the parents or somebody had said on social media about the game and about what had happened and whatever the deal was. And I stopped them right in the middle of it because all they were trying to do is get me mad. And I said, you just stop right there. I don't care what they said. Don't want to know what they said. And so during my time in coaching, once that stuff started, I never read any of that stuff about what they were saying, people were saying about our teams and so forth. It didn't make sense. In fact, that I had learned when I went through the hard times at OP, when I was getting my dose of humility back then, I didn't read the newspaper. And so during football season, like the Bruton Standard, I never picked it up, never read anything uh, that was said. Sooner or later, everybody gets humbled in football. There's no saying in the NFL that there are only two kind of coaches, those who have been fired and those who are going to be fired in the future. The greatest coach of all time is Bill Belichick. And yep, he got fired from his first job as head coach with the Cleveland Browns. And of course, his D.C. at the time was Nick Saban. After all the championships he's had in the pros, as his team has struggled some the last few years, all the media and fans have questioned him. The greatest coach, professional football of all time, everybody gets humbled. If you've been a T.R. Miller fan and an Alabama or Auburn fan down through the years, you've been really fortunate enough in your lifetime to witness a lot of great football a lot of big games and multiple championships. Way more than most people. How fortunate you've been. For fans of some teams have had far less success. In fact, chances are that you're probably a pretty spoiled spoil fan. And when the team isn't quite as good, do you cheer as hard or do you complain about the quarterback and the coaches and the defensive backs? Listen, that's human nature. You know, we, when we aren't successful, we all look for reasons why. But I guess in one sense, that's kind of your dose of fan humility. Because when we say that everybody gets humbled in football, I mean everyone, even the fans. One of the favorite items that people are talking about these days on TV and social media, they try to get a stir out of people 
by saying that the Alabama dynasty is over. The team that won the national championship in 2020 was the SEC champion and played the national championship game in 2021 and won 11 games in 2022 by winning the Sugar Bowl and beating the Big 12 champ, actually dominating the Big 12 champ. They lose to Texas and the dynasty is over. I don't know if the Alabama dynasty is over or not, but right now they're certainly getting a dose of humility. So the Colorado story is the latest thing to hit college football. Deion Sanders has made great press for everyone. And what he has done is, in one sense, almost a celebrity coach in using the transfer portal and turning the Colorado Buffaloes around is really remarkable. And I will say this about him. As I read about them and watch his teams, they're short in some areas, and so they're gonna they're gonna suffer some as the season goes on. But his teams look extremely well coached, and I know that some of the guys, like I know the defensive coordinator is Charles Kelly. Charles Kelly is from Skipperfield, Alabama. I'd known him for a long time. He had coached around. He was a young coach. He was at Jacksonville State. Later on, ended up being the defense coordinator at Florida State, and. So went to Alabama. He used to come down and recruit our school a lot wherever he was coaching. So I've known him for a long time. And uh, he's a good guy and a very hard worker. So Dion's got some good coaches there, and they're doing a good job of I really wish that he and his players could use a little more humility as they win. You know, what bothers me today in sports of all kind and all levels is that when we win, we start around and talk about how great we were today. And next week, when we lose, we go over and sit on the bench, put a towel over our head, and hide from everyone. Sometimes in football, you lose a game that you think you should have won, and you lose your confidence. That's happened to us on more than one occasion. But players and coaches ought to stay somewhere in the two, in between the two extremes of being overconfident are not having enough. Lou Holtz, <clears throat> the great coach who led teams at North Carolina State, Arkansas, Minnesota, Notre Dame, South Carolina. Lou Holtz once said that nothing in football is as good as it seems and nothing in football is as bad as it seems. The truth lies somewhere in between. And he was right. Sooner or later, Colorado will not only lose, but they may lose badly. No one has all the answers in football. Everybody gets humbled. And it's impossible to play great every week for three months. All that stuff about disrespect, you know, that's fine to motivate you for a week. But there are some good teams, and there's some good coaches out there. They'll recognize what Colorado's weaknesses are, and they'll have some, some personnel to attack those weaknesses. One week, <clears throat> the Buffaloes will be overconfident, and some underdog will beat them. When that happens, the cameras are still going to be there to record their comments. I used to tell players that they would be a lot better off to play harder and talk less. But what Colorado has done this year has really been very special. I think it's been good for college football. But sooner or later, 
they'll get humbled just like everybody else. Last year, TCU was the talk of December, making the college football playoffs. They beat Michigan and made it to the championship game. And in their next two outings, the championship game and the first game of the 2023 season, they got beat 65-7 to by Georgia. And then in the opening game of the 2023 season at home, they got beat by Colorado, who had won one game the previous year. To be honest, two real embarrassments. Everybody gets humbled in football. And you may only be one fumble, one injury, or one missed tackle away from that humility. Even Bear Bryant got humbled his last year at, at Alabama in 1982. The same for Coach Dye a decade later when he was at Auburn. And what about Aaron Rodgers? Rodgers went out in the woods, did some thinking, came back and decided that he was going to go to the New York Jets. And he goes to the Jets, and he gave Jets hope. And all everybody was talking about in the offseason in the NFL is how much better the Jets were that Rodgers playing quarterback was the one piece to the puzzle they needed. They were great on defense. They had good running backs. They were good in the offensive line. Everything was going to be good. And they were going to go on and go on and make the Super Bowl this year. And so there was a lot of excitement. They play the Monday night game on September 11th. He runs the flag out. Everybody's cheering in New York. It's fantastic. Four plays in, he tears his Achilles tendon. He tears his Achilles tendon. I've had that injury, and I can tell you it's not a pleasant one. And it'll take him a little while to get back from that, especially at age 39. But everybody gets humbled, and injuries can humble you in football in a hurry. And it's done that to the great Aaron Rodgers. As you look out there and watch teams play, watch the teams that seem to have a little humility about them and that understand that even though they want a big game today, Tomorrow could be a different subject. In high school football in Alabama, we've had some interesting things go on already in this young season. Rush Probst coming back to coach and getting in an altercation already early in the uh, in the season. That was great. Uh, the Hoover team, uh, one in three. Uh, again, everybody doesn't win all the time. They're getting their dose of humility. Lately, we've had a couple of disturbing things happen. We've had a band director that got tased and arrested for refusing the police request to stop playing and leave the stadium. That's a bad deal. It's a bad look for everybody. It's a no-win situation. And when you're in charge of students, you have to do what's best for your students. And... I understand that, in this case, the band director probably wanted to make a statement or an issue or get some attention or whatever he was doing. But his job was really to protect his students. What he should have done is packed up and left, put them on a bus, taken them back. And then if he had an issue with not being able to play at the end of the game, deal with it. It's my understanding that they had a policy that they weren't going to do that, but he and the other band director got together and decided that they were. Regardless, he's responsible for those students. And he put them in a bad position by 
confronting and arguing with the police over the whole deal. When you're in charge of students, you got to do what's best for them. And he should have put them on the bus and took it, taken them home. So that whole issue is still going on, and it seems to get worse every day. So before it gets over with, we'll have lawsuits and all kinds of different things going on. And what happens so many times today is we have issues like this that's really a, a nothing. We take something that's some little old bitty thing, and we blow it up and make it something that it's not and create all kind of issues. And in, in, in this situation, there are going to be no winners in this. It's everybody's going to lose. The Birmingham Police Department certainly going to lose out of it. The Birmingham City School System's going to lose out of it. And sooner or later, he doesn't realize it, I'm sure the band director's going to lose out of it. We need people involved in education that can make good decisions at times, particularly when they're dealing with students. In Madison County, uh, after the first week where they had an incident, the first week where students um, all of a sudden in the middle of the game all took off running like somebody had a gun or something. They all took off running. and they, so, so It was such a disturbance they had to stop the game. And so apparently this is something that they suggest you do on social media or something. And so it's just kind of crazy. Uh, instead of finding out exactly, you know, who was the organizers of this, and dealing with that, they just came out and said that no longer were they going to let students attend games unless it was your team playing. But I hate to see that happening. We, we're going to start keeping people out of games and all. And I understand the cities are a different deal. I get it. I understand that they have, they have issues of all kinds. Um, most of the, a lot of the cities, <clears throat> they have metal detectors. Uh, at the at the games now, just about any event you go into, you're you're being searched, and so uh, I understand all that completely. And you have to do what makes it safe. But I hate to see us just say that you know we're not going to let people come to the game. Sometimes I don't see how people are making ends meet uh, with their football programs. You know, some of the pictures I see of some of the crowds where there's just not very many people at the game. And now we're telling people, you know, hey, you don't need to come because we think there may be a dangerous situation. So the Alabama High School Athletic Association got into another little spat over the uh, gift cards and uh, free chicken snacks that had been offered players. Uh, someone had turned them in uh, as they were accepting money, gifts, whatever, for being a player. That stuff's been going on forever. I mean, there's been people that's done Player of the Week, and they get a little gift card to the local hamburger place. That stuff's been done for years and years and years. In fact, the first year I was at Miller, 1989, the Pizza Hut came to me and said, look, we, we want to give the Player of the Week a free pizza. Well, I didn't really believe in Player of the Week, but I thought, okay, you know, this would be good for some of our kids. They'd get a free pizza. I didn't realize at the time it was violating the rule of any kind. It's a pizza. So anyway, I allowed them to do it that year. And here's what I found out. That whoever we named as Player of the Week and won the pizza, the next week they played like crap. And so at the end of that season, they came back to me the next year, and I said, oh, no, we're not doing that again. And I announced to everybody there would be no more players of the week. Never, ever again. And the rest of my coaching career, I never had a player of the week. 
<laughs> I never had one. I just refused to do it because, like I said, they they get, I don't know, they get the big head, they start feeling good. And then the other thing that happens is sooner or later, are you going to have the same guy's player of the week? What if he's the best player and he's the best player every week? You're going to give it to him every week? No, you can't do that. And then people start saying, well, you know, they gave player of the week to him. He got the pizza. Hey, I had a better game than he did. And before you know it, you got people mad about it. Player of the week, one of the worst inventions that they ever came up with. So anyway, this people have been doing this for a long time. I hate to see down there, at, especially I think originally two kids were from Laverne. Excuse me, they were from Brantley, the original two kids. I want to think I read somewhere where they were, their reward there was they got a chicken snack from the chicken shack. Now, if you know anything about Laverne, Alabama, there's three things they're known for, okay? They're known for good high school football. They're known as uh, one of the Pepsi-Cola bottling company there in, in, uh, in Laverne. And the other thing that they are known for, they are known for the chicken shack. And they've been serving some fine chicken there for a long time. So I understand that, you know, that to win a chicken snack at Chicken Shack, that may be a very valuable commodity, and I understand that. But I will tell you this. If if this had been, if I'd been the coach and this had happened and they had, I got a call about, hey, we understand that two of your guys um, took a free chicken snack at the local chicken place, I would have said, I don't know anything about that. Let me investigate that. I'll call you right back. And I would have grabbed both of those two people up. I would have driven them down there to the chicken place. And I would have said, you pay these people for that chicken snack, all right, that you got free the other day. And they'd have gone in there and paid them. And then we'd have gone back. And I'd have called the Alabama High School Athletics said, And I would have said, which would have been true, both of my players ate a chicken snack, but they paid for it which would have been true, and the whole thing had been over with. Uh, next year, uh, this whole thing will be be moved. I, I did say with the Central Board of the Alabama High School Athletic Association, uh, they had a meeting up there and changed the rule and, and fixed it, which was good. Uh, they gave – Tuscaloosa County had to forfeit a game because their kids had got a gift card. Uh, they gave them the, the game back and all, and that was – a. I think the right thing to do. You know, you you think you got rules to cover everything, but things change, and you don't you don't have uh, what you need sometimes. I will say this: that this point will be moot this time next year because this spring, either the Alabama High School Athletic Association will have a rule allowing NIL for high school students in Alabama, or the Alabama legislature will almost assuredly create a rule themselves and make a law uh, because, you, as I've said before, you can't have NIL in Louisiana and Tennessee and some of these places and start losing your best high school football players to those states when they're seniors so that they can get NIL money. So you, you, that's not going to happen, so that there'll have to be some changes. So I don't think that the gift card and the chicken thing and the pizza thing for players will be a big deal uh, in the future. The last thing I want to deal with here just for a minute is the um, uh, the Alabama quarterback deal. I've commented a whole lot on this. I've tried to uh, stay quiet. I, I had some situations down through the years at Miller a couple of times where we had quarterbacks who were about the same, 
and he eventually, and I think there were a couple of seasons, I actually started playing um, a couple of them. Same time, you know, we'd have one and play for a little while, and I'd put the other one in, that kind of thing. Um, but eventually that worked itself out. Down through the years, uh, there were a lot of years I used two quarterbacks. I would use one as a starter, a regular quarterback. I would use the other one on the goal line sometimes because he was a better runner than my starter. And you could always use a running quarterback down there on the goal line. It also allowed us to um, take that kid who was probably going to be our starter next year and give him some real game reps and pressure situations down there on the goal line. And he much better prepared him to play quarterback next year. So there was some advantage to that when that occurred. As a general rule, you can only have one quarterback. It's, it's, you can't go into a, a, a battle with uh, two, two generals, uh, two leaders. You, know, you need one to be able to, uh, to run your team. The, the first rule of offense that I ever knew is that you took the abilities and skill set of your quarterback and you built your offense around that. Now, I wasn't a guy that thought about that we changed offense every year. But you can, you can expand your offense in certain directions based on what you have. When you have a guy who's a good thrower and you got some good receivers, you need to throw the ball more. I, that pretty much makes sense. If you've got a quarterback back there who's a good runner, you need to use his running skill and abilities. Okay, Very important. So like... Alabama had Bryce Young the last couple of years. They were they didn't take Bryce Young and try to get him to run a lot of option stuff, and they didn't want him running the ball ten or twelve times a game. I mean, they didn't want him to do it. They didn't want him to do that. It's not his skill set. All right, his skill set was dropping back, throwing the ball, and he was obviously very very good at that. There was a couple things that bothered me about the Alabama quarterback thing from the beginning. And the first one, I just want to talk about this just briefly, is the thing about bringing uh, Tyler Buckner in from Notre Dame. So apparently when spring training got over, Alabama wasn't really pleased where they were quarterback-wise. Okay, that makes sense. That happens a lot of times. The offensive coordinator at Alabama, Tommy Reese, had just come from Notre Dame. And so all of a sudden we hear, that the guy who was going to be the backup at Notre Dame, who had been the starter at some point in time in the in the 2022 season, but had lost his job to a transfer, he was going to end up being the backup, that there was a good chance he was coming to Alabama. That never made sense to me. If, in this day and time of transfer portal, this guy is head and shoulders better than anybody you got, and the guy who coached him last year can tell you that, and, of course, they watched all the film. They know. If that's the case, maybe that makes sense. But if he's not head and shoulders but better than everybody you got, what's the purpose in bringing him in? There's an old adage in football again. If you have two quarterbacks, you really have no quarterbacks. That you've got to have one quarterback that's better than the others, and it's obvious. And because... It's not a position that you really need to run people in and out of. Hey, offensive tackle, we can play two offensive tackles. We can let them alternate series if they want to. Linebackers, we can run a rotation at linebacker. We can play three linebackers. Okay, maybe we're going to play two linebackers. we got three of them. We'll rotate them in and out and rest them. Okay, you can run wide receivers in and out all the time. Defensive backs in and out all the time. Well, it's difficult because of the leadership 
issues. Quarterback is a different deal. He handles the ball on every play. And so you want one that's obviously better and that the team understands that and that's going to be your leader. So why you want to bring three guys that you're not sure about rather than two guys, I have no idea. The other thing that happens when you bring that transfer guy in is you've got guys like Ty Simpson and you got Jalen Milrow. They have been at Alabama for a year and a half or two and a half years in Milrow's case. They came in with a bunch of guys. They got friends on the team. They've earned respect from those team members. They're expecting one of them to be the quarterback. And now all of a sudden you bring in some other guy from Notre Dame. Never made any sense. That's a great way to screw up your football team by causing different people on the team to take different allegiances. Okay, When you have one guy who's obviously better than everybody else, okay, everybody understands that. But if you've got two guys that are really close, it can tear your team apart sometimes. And why you want to bring a third guy in and, and with the possibility of playing him, I have no idea. That just absolutely made no sense to me whatsoever. Jalen Milrow started the first game. A little background on him. Tremendous player in Texas. Was a great thrower and runner. He is six foot two and 220 pounds. Admittedly, and they said this on TV, that they had said that he was the third fastest player on the Alabama team. That means he can fly. And there's certainly been some plays that you've been able to see his speed already. He's not as big as Cam Newton was at Auburn in 2010, but he's faster than Cam Newton. If you remember the Auburn team from 2013, the one that went to the national championship, their quarterback was Nick Marshall, who, by the way, I think is still playing defensive back in the Canadian Football League. Uh, Nick Marshall, his skill set was that he had originally signed and went to Georgia, I think, as a defensive back or something. But he ended up, I think, in junior college playing quarterback for somebody. And Auburn, Gus Malzahn, signed him as a quarterback. And if you remember when the 2013 season started, nobody knew anything about him. And what they found out was, number one, he was fast. And he could run the ball and he could run the option. Okay, the second thing they found out about him was he threw the deep ball pretty well. If you remember all those deep balls he threw to Sammy Coates that year? He had issues with touch. He had issues with the intermediate passing game a little bit. But he was a good decision maker and he could really run the option. And what those teams in 2010 and 2013 did at Auburn is they really put pressure on defense. They had great, great difficulty defending Cam Newton, not only because of his size, but he became a pretty good passer as well. Obviously, they had spent a number of years in the NFL. What they were doing on offense, running speed sweeps and running the power read, which I described earlier and stuff, put tremendous pressure on the defenses. Same thing in, in when, when Marshall was playing quarterback. If you remember the 2013 Iron Bowl, which was the kick six Iron Bowl, uh, Marshall broke a run early in the game and scored. All right? And then late in the game, he runs an option over there towards Alabama sideline, pulls the ball down, starts to run it. They all, the defense, comes to him. And because he was behind the line of scrimmage, he stopped 
toss the ball to Cope down there for the tying touchdown. Uh, that essentially forced the field goal later on that they ran back. Malzahn and Auburn did a great job of utilizing the running and passing skills. What I see out of Jalen Milrow now is he's a bigger Nick Marshall, and his skill set is very similar. Great at down the field throws, okay? Not as good as some of their immediate throws, but that's something he can get better at. Why Alabama doesn't allow him to line up and run the ball and put in an offense that was similar to what Auburn had run in those years, I don't. I just don't understand. And I'm not talking about scrambling, but be able to run a quarterback draw, which they've done a little bit of, but take him and run the zone read. They already have that in. He does that. But nobody's going to let him keep the ball on that. They're going to they're gonna make him hand that ball off. You can get in all kind of formations, spread the defense out, run these plays, run the power read like we were discussing earlier that Op hurt us with back there in, in 2013. Uh, run the power read and, and run the speed sweep motion, hand the ball off to one of your fast receivers, let him keep it, read the guy on the line of scrimmage, or you don't even have to read it. You could just fake it and run the ball on either side. Let him run the ball to the side of the speed sweep or let him come back and run a counter play. Everybody has a counter scheme in. Let him come back and run the counter play off of that stuff. Uh, there are speed options that you can run where they just snap it to him and he options in man on the line of scrimmage, which is a great way to get people sealed, the ball pitched on the perimeter out there to one of their really good running backs, and Alabama has good running backs. Um, you can put a tight end in. Run power play. In other words, block everybody down, pull the backside guard around, let your running back kick out the last man on the line of scrimmage. Snap it to Milrow and let him go. And one of the first things that people started doing in, when they went to spread offense, put four receivers out wide. But if your quarterback can run the ball, it's like still having two running backs in the backfield. And now you get them outnumbered in the box. They certainly could do that. They could get in empty sets, give him a very simple passing game out of empty, and then allow him to line up and run the same inside zone play that they run with running backs. Less people in the box. It would put a great, great pressure on the defense. They could snap the ball to him and just let him run a sweep, let the running back lead block, let him use his speed to get outside. They could run iso plays and let the running back lead up on the linebacker inside because you're going to have less people there when you start spreading folks out. Run screens, slants, some simple RPO stuff, and they've, they've basically quit running most of the RPO stuff that they were using. There are just so many things they could do. And then run play action off that. You remember the Tebow pass? All right, somebody ran that the other day. You could do all of these things and let him run the ball. And when that happens, several things are going to occur when that as far as passing games go, instead of dropping back all the time, if they'd sprint him every once in a while, let him run bootlegs off some of the runs and things, they'd get him on the outside where he's a run and pass threat. All that makes sense because of his great running skill and his great speed. Now, once you've, you've done some of this in your offense, here's what you're going to find out. Number one, you can have a much more competent quarterback, and that's going to make him better in the passing game. Number two, it's going to open up all kinds of play-action passes. Um, all kind of down-the-field throws, crossing-the-field throws, because as people play man coverage on them, 
He said, now they, they've got to back up a little bit, keep one eye on the quarterback running the ball. They're going to run options. you got to have somebody out there wide to force the play, in other words, to take the pitch man if they're going to run an option play. It puts great, great pressure on the defense to get enough people in the box to stop the run and yet still be able to cover the pass on the play-action pass. It disciplines the defense, and um, it'll calm the pass rush down. It's certainly going to uh, make them uh, be much more disciplined in what they do. Uh, Coach Saban wants to run the ball, and certainly this would, would be good. It would be really good for their offensive linemen who are having some trouble pass protecting to allow them to line up and really run the ball down there. They could use a little tempo with it, allows them to get real physical, which is what they want to do with the offensive line. No one really fears Milrow much as a passer, but as a runner and a passer, it would be much different. I will, well, I'll finish up with this. If you'll notice, the Baltimore Ravens, what they've done with Lamar Jackson, letting him run the ball and throw the ball, he's getting better and better and better at what he does, and he's a real threat. And when you're in the NFL and you go play the Baltimore Ravens, first thing, how are we going to handle Lamar Jackson? Milro could do the same thing for Alabama. Jalen Hurts, they've designed an offense for Jalen Hurts for the Philadelphia Eagles to allow him to be one of the best players in the National Football League. So it is possible to do all this. And if Alabama will line up and let Milro run the ball, I think you'll see they'll have great success. They try to make a pocket passer out of him and just let him hand the ball off, although they do have great running backs. If they do that, I think you'll see that they'll have more and more problems as time goes on. Well, I want to thank you for listening. This has been a minute with Coach Riggs.